I think we always felt like we were kind of equal. Obviously. To make the group stronger or to let me be stronger. And that decision was to let Paul in to make the group stronger. Instead of going for an individual thing, we we went for the strongest format, you know, and for equals. This is Fine Tuning, an examination of Mark Lewison's Tune In. An original series by Another Kind of Mind. Welcome to episode 7 of our fine-tuning series, A Spanner in the Works. In this episode, we examine the Birkenhead Strike, an incident in early 1962 when a dispute between Brian Epstein and Paul McCartney resulted in the Beatles missing a single performance. We will use this event as a case study to examine one of the persistent problems of TuneIn, its failure to equitably present Paul's viewpoint when he has conflicts with other major players. TuneIn does rightly address the early clash of personalities between Paul and Brian. But as usual, TuneIn presents Paul as always on the wrong side of that personality clash. To be clear, this is not a Brian versus Paul episode. Brian Epstein was an excellent manager dedicated, loyal, hardworking, visionary, and creative. Imperfect, but ultimately a great fit and a stroke of good fortune for the Beatles. However, Paul, as Brian's paying client, was well within his rights to question certain choices of Brian's. To suggest he wasn't is absurd. It's also insulting. Brian himself was forthcoming and philosophical about the hiccups in his early relationship with the Beatles. And all things considered, it was a successful and positive relationship for the six years Brian was with them. This great improvement in Brian and Paul's relationship is blatantly omitted from TuneIn, a massive oversight which we find impossible to justify. TuneIn also inexplicably privileges John's point of view on the conflict over Paul's point of view, which seems problematic given Paul is the one directly involved. Sometimes raw quotes from Paul himself are provided to show or at least partially show his point of view. But disturbingly, almost all the quotes from John on this subject are from Lennon Remembers or the St. Regis interview and TuneIn reports them uncritically and without caveat. But since John is regularly described throughout TuneIn as honest, sincere, forthright, and candid, and Paul is not, this effectively guides the reader to dismiss Paul's complaints, or even in some cases, to disbelieve altogether his claims, as Paul's statements are often called. 
In fact, Paul's statements are labeled claims more than anyone else in TuneIn. Specifically, six times versus once each for John, Brian, and Ringo, and twice for George. TuneIn insists that Paul's tardiness on two separate occasions were deliberate, hostile actions taken against Brian Epstein, even going so far as to frame Paul's behavior as willful sabotage that deliberately endangers the band. These are serious allegations. How does TuneIn support them? And what is its theory about Paul's motives? That's what we'll be examining in this episode. If you've been listening to our series so far, you'll probably have a feel for our modus operandi. We'll examine Lewison's writing choices by looking up footnotes to determine legitimate usage of source material, cross-referencing with other sources to identify what's edited or omitted, carefully weighing language choices, what words are used, what points get repeated, what connections are drawn, whose quotes and viewpoints are prioritized and validated. And also, just in general, whose side does it seem like we're supposed to be on? All right, so let's do it. But first, the setup. How does TuneIn lay the groundwork for the Brian-Paul conflict? Well, let's take a look, Phoebe. Let's take a look, Daphne. Let's start with the first formal meeting of the Beatles and Brian. So this is actually their second meeting. <laughs> they had like sort of a preliminary informal meeting, but this meeting is where they verbally agree to make Brian their manager. TuneIn explains how Paul was running very late. Apparently he'd overslept and was over an hour late. Oof. Bad Paul. Bad, bad, bad Paul. Bad, bad Paul. Fix your alarm clock, Paul. From page 754 of TuneIn, Paul's non-arrival made things awkward. Brian wouldn't want to say everything twice, so they waited for him to show. And waited. Brian's irritation couldn't be suppressed, and at least one beetle was angry too. As Brian would recall, George was really cross with Paul because he thought he was going to spoil things. I was a bit put out, Brian said two years later, more coolly collected. I thought, this is the first meeting. They want to do something about management? Brian had every right to wonder what was going on. Paul was patently ambitious, liked to impress, and the Beatles needed a manager. So why was he doing this to the one person trying to help him? Probably the only man in Liverpool who stood any chance of getting him everything he wanted. Hmm, good question. <laughs> why indeed? Yeah. Okay, so Lewis does a good job of setting up the scenario here and asking the obvious question. Why was Paul seemingly on purpose making things hard for Brian? And he's also correct to say Brian had every right to wonder. Tune in continues. 
After three quarters of an hour, Brian suggested George phone Forthland Road to establish when Paul had left for the bus. He returned, saying Paul had only just got out of bed and was now having a bath and would be along when he was done. Brian blew, but ended up being charmed and laughing. The usual beetle mix. Says Brian, I shouted about a bit, and I thought, this is very disgraceful indeed. And how can he be so late for an important thing? And George, with his slow, lopsided smile, just simply replied, that was very typical of them. Well, he may be late, but he's very clean. Okay. Totally reasonable for Brian to be upset about that, in my yes. opinion. Uh, Paul was very late. It wasn't like 15 minutes. Like, that was, right. was very late. Yes. Making people wait for that long. It, it's disrespectful. It is disrespectful. I can't, I can't stand. I'm more. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> I, honestly, like, I do understand that people have things going on. But in this case, yeah. he has no excuse, really. Like, he just overslept. Yeah irresponsible disrespectful and if you're already late maybe skip the bath and even though he was angry sounds like brian took it in stride and didn't even make a big deal out of it yeah however lewison never answers his own question why is paul doing this to brian apparently yes right from the beginning tune in sets up this lateness as definitely not possibly but definitely a deliberate swipe at Brian, specifically. As a reminder, Lewison wrote, Paul was patently ambitious, liked to impress, and the Beatles needed a manager. So why was he doing this to the one person trying to help him? But the weird thing about that is that Tunin has noted many times that the Beatles all had a history of being late and missing gigs before Brian became their manager and licked them into shape. For example, on page 745, Tunin reads, The Beatles were damaged goods. They had that reputation for being unreliable, unpunctual, arrogant, and bullshy. Their perfunctory take-it-or-leave-it attitude was so disliked by promoters that two had left it, and several others steered clear altogether. The only promoters who gave them work now were Vic Anton, Mrs. Best, Sam Leach, and The Cavern. Okay, so they weren't just tardy. They were also arrogant and combative. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> at that first less formal meeting with Brian that we mentioned, all the Beatles were late and showed up drunk. And these two meetings, the first one and the one where Paul was late, were only four days apart. So, starting on page 742. The meeting was fixed for early afternoon, after the Beatles' cavern lunchtime session. The 200-step walk was halted after 10, when they stepped into the grapes. They didn't step out again until closing time, and arrived at Nems tardily, and with Bob Wooler in tow. Then there's a quote from Bob Wooler explaining that they had him come along because there were a lot of con men around and they wanted to get his vibe check on Brian, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then TuneIn continues. Wooler was personally embarrassed the Beatles had turned up late and lubricated, and Brian, a pathological stickler for punctuality, would not have been impressed either. 
okay, so again, this is four days before Paul is late. So why didn't Lewison ask why all the Beatles were doing this to Brian at this first meeting? I mean, they, they only had to walk from the cavern to Nems. <laughs> but but unfortunately there was a bar between those two places so well you know yeah so they were not only late they turned up drunk surely that's hostile right if paul's lateness was hostile yeah why is it okay when the beatles do it together but when paul does it alone it, there's some big mystery behind his tardiness mm -hmm. I, I guess Tunin is relying on the reader's understanding of paul being patently ambitious liking to impress etc you know in order to paint him as having some type of ulterior motive but mm -hmm. ambition and desire to impress aren't relevant to the fact that paul is often late they're all often late right like you said tunin has made that point over and over again and yet, all of a sudden, it frames lateness as being out of character, especially for Paul. Right. So out of character, in fact, that there has to be something else going on. But it's definitely not out of Paul's character, at least not at this point in his life. And we know that because we have Mike McCartney on the record about Paul's chronic lateness in his 1965 essay, Portrait of Paul, published in Woman Magazine which we have quoted many times in this series. Mm -hmm. yeah. This particular tidbit, however, was not included in TuneIn. Correct, even though TuneIn also quotes this essay many times. Mike wrote, Paul has always been the world's worst timekeeper. It's almost impossible to get him up in the mornings, for instance. And you ought to see him when he starts shaving. He dithers about for hours before beginning. <laughs> and then when he starts, it's as though he were performing a major operation. His face. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, take come care on, Mike. of that thing. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's his moneymaker, that, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I understand that that is really annoying and frustrating, but it's not necessarily evidence of malintent. It's also a very common trait of neurodivergence. That's a whole other topic. Well, uh, yeah, I agree that if Paul has a pre-existing condition of being chronically late, and if <laughs> Brian just discovers that when he begins to manage Paul, he might take it personally when it's not, in fact, personal. Yes. Yeah, I have friends and family with severe time blindness, and I, I have learned over time, and I come to accept not to take it personally because it, yeah. it really is not meant personally. Yes, but I also, of course, think it, it is reasonable, Brian, to complain about it because it is unprofessional to be late all the time. Of course. And Brian, not knowing Paul, would also be justified in wondering if there is something deeper mm -hmm. going on. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> obviously we and Lewison have more context now. And considering this information from mike i think it's remiss of tune in to frame this as paul being hostile to brian yeah because if paul has always been chronically late in his personal life 
and then is also chronically late in his professional life as a Beatle before Brian. And then they hire Brian and Paul continues, continues. To, to be chronically late. How does it make sense to frame that lateness as special aggression toward Brian? And good on the other Beatles, I guess, for getting with the punctuality program before Paul did. But again, he's just continuing his established behavior. Yeah. It's annoying AF, but hard to argue that it must be, of course, directed at Brian personally. Yeah, that information from Mike is critical because that does kind of go against his image of being the perfectionist. You know, you would Mm -hmm. expect him to be extraordinarily punctual. You would expect him to be the one getting on the other Beatles case for being late. You would not expect him to be the chronically late person of the group. Like that should have been pointed out. And Mike is very clear. As as a sibling would be. (laughs) I speak from experience. Anyway, this is the backdrop to the Birkenhead strike. Paul had previously been late to an important meeting with Brian. And possibly late to other gigs in the interim. Mike specifically said that Paul wasn't the only Beatle who was late on Brian's watch, even if he was the worst. But suffice to say, we are very unconvinced by Tunin's theory that Paul's lateness was secretly aggressive toward Brian. All right, let's discuss Tunin's theory on why Paul is supposedly working against Brian. Because the thing is that Tunin never adequately explains how it draws this conclusion or why Paul would be hampering Brian's efforts. Tunin reads, why was he doing this to the one person trying to help him? Probably the only man in Liverpool who stood any chance of getting him everything he wanted. So Lewison has set up this question, this conundrum. Lewison has set up this puzzle for the for the reader. Mm-hmm. Paul was patently ambitious. We know he is like foaming at the mouth for success and fame. Mm-hmm. And here comes the man who's going to help him. Why would he spit in his face like this? Right. Well, he doesn't tell us right away, but he's definitely setting us up for some big reveal that's going to come later. Yeah, we can look forward to that. Oh, I'm looking so forward to it. So, Daphne, why don't you tell us how TuneIn describes Paul's initial reaction to an opinion of Brian? Okay. On page 755, Lewison writes, Brian was, in several ways, the ideal manager for Paul. He then quotes Paul, saying, he'd gone to a public school it was another strata of society and none of us had been to rada tunin continues he also says brian's religion was an attraction for him which wouldn't have been the case with john and george though it also wasn't something that kept them away paul is quoted again saying my dad was quite pleased when we went with brian because he thought Jewish people had a flair with money, which I think is probably true. Okay. 
Paul, can you not? Can you not? Okay. Jesus. Anyway. Anyway, Tudin immediately contradicts Paul and comments on his attitude, writing, However, John remembered Paul's attitude to Brian being very different. John was always emphatic that Paul didn't want Brian as the Beatles manager and presented obstacles to destabilize him, to make his job difficult, like turning a plate for meetings. Okay. So this must be Tunin's theory, that Paul flat out didn't want Brian as manager, and that's why he's being late on purpose. He's trying to deliberately destabilize him. All right, so what does Tunin give as evidence to support this theory? Well... Lewison quotes John in a mashup of two different interviews. Okay. Quote, three of us chose Epstein. Paul used to sulk and God knows what. Unquote. That one's from May 14th, 1970. Second quote, Paul wasn't that keen on Brian. He's more conservative the way he approaches things. He even says that. It's nothing he denies. Unquote. That one's from 1975. So are these two John quotes really enough to support Lewis in writing? John was always emphatic. Paul didn't want Brian. I don't think so. I think Lewis is making a huge leap by taking John's comment that Paul used to sulk and translating that for the reader to Paul presented obstacles to destabilize Brian to make his job difficult, like turning up late for meetings, because John didn't mention anything about obstacles or destabilization. Those are 100% Lewison's own words, put forward in an effort to support his own theory. Okay, well, also, let's take a look at what he wrote here. John remembered Paul's attitude to Brian being very different. Okay, well, John did not contradict what you just quoted Paul as saying. Did he contradict that Paul liked the fact that Brian had been to Rada? Did he mm. contradict that Paul and his dad thought uh, Jews made good managers? He didn't directly contradict either of those things, number one. But let's take a look at John's actual quotes in the original context. Okay, the first quote is from an interview with Jan Wenner on May 14th, 1970, in response to Paul's announced departure from the Beatles, about which John is notoriously hurt and angry. This is an interview in which John very much wants it known that he left Paul, not the other way around, and that all the other Beatles had already quit first. But he also wants to tell us. Paul leaving the Beatles is irrational and unnecessary. <laughs> this is his opinion <laughs> for the next few years. So John is claiming he already left Paul, but also saying, how dare Paul leave me? Yes. Classic John. Classic okay. John. <laughs> yeah. So John says the following, in the context of explaining the ongoing dispute over Alan Klein's management. This, this is what John says. It's a simple fact that Paul can't have his own way, so he's causing chaos. 
I don't care what you think of Klein. Call Klein something else. Call him Epstein for now. And just consider the fact that three of us chose Epstein. Paul was the same with Brian in the beginning, if you must know. He used to sulk and God knows what. Wouldn't turn up for the dates or the bookings. Unquote. So John isn't even talking about Brian. Because he said, call Klein something else. Call him Epstein for now. And just consider the fact that three of us chose Epstein. Correct. He's talking about Alan Klein, but saying, okay, maybe you think Klein is a dirtbag. But the fact of the matter is, three of us chose him. If you don't like Klein, let's use someone else as an example. What if it was Brian Epstein? You like him, right? Mm-hmm. So what if the three of us chose Epstein and Paul said no? We should be able to override him, right? Then he adds, if you must know, Paul did this in the beginning with Brian too. He does say Paul wouldn't turn up for the dates or bookings, but Birkenhead is the only known show that Paul ever deliberately missed, which is presumably why Lewison doesn't quote that part, because that's a wild misrepresentation on John's part that he can't substantiate. Right. Anyway, this quote shows John's perspective in 1970. So it may be relevant when we're analyzing the breakup because it does shed important light on John's thought process during the breakup. John is looking to the past to try to figure out what Paul is currently thinking and doing and why in 1970. So again, for the sake of attempting to understand John's behavior with regards to Alan Klein, yes, this may be useful. But first of all, regardless of whatever John's logic was, he was wrong about Klein. Klein was a bad actor, and that's been proven over time and decided in court. Yeah. Plus, John doesn't say anything here about why he thinks Paul did this. With Brian. Regarding, with Brian, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, Lewis in writing, Paul presented obstacles to destabilize Brian and made his job difficult, is him putting words in John's mouth. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. To say nothing of how he misrepresents John's quote that the three of us chose Epstein. John is not talking about Brian there. John is saying the three of us chose Klein in that quote. Though, of course, it's convenient for TuneIn's purposes that John is using Epstein as a moniker for Klein to make a point. Well, yeah, because he's technically not misquoting him. He's just misrepresenting him. Well, and also it means that the three of us is is incorrect. If it's about Brian, the three of us would be John, George, and Pete. But John isn't talking about Pete. He's saying the three of us. Well, exactly. Me, George and Ringo. Yes. So it's not even, you can't even shoehorn that into making it real. It's It's obviously a euphemism. Which is a hilarious bit of John logic as well. (laughs) Oh, you think this guy's bad? Well, how about if I trade out his name for someone who is good? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Okay, John. Again, your your logic is... That is his logic. Which is fine. It's good to present his logic. Especially in, in 1970 when we're wondering, why are you in so deep with Klein? Mm-hmm. he feels very firm that he's making the right decision and that's we're not going over the breakup again here 
But the other really bad thing about using that three of us chose Epstein quote that way is that by by taking it out of context that way, it changes the meaning so much that you read it as John saying the three of us Beatles chose Epstein and Paul didn't. Right. That's a pretty bad misrepresentation. And as you point out, like, who, who three Beatles? Ringo wasn't even there. So are you are you bringing Pete Best into this argument now? He's not like, get Pete Best on the phone. He deserves a vote, too. Should we go with Klein or not? <laughs> <laughs> but to get back at the subject at hand, John is not saying in his quote that Paul didn't want Brian as the Beatles manager. Right. He is saying, Paul doesn't want Klein, but Ringo, George, and I do. So it's really bad for TuneIn to tell the reader that John is actually saying, Paul didn't want Brian, but Pete, George, and I did. I find that kind of shocking, really. Mm -hmm. I, that's very, very concerning. Let's read them side by side one more time. Okay. Here's John's full original quote. I'm telling you what's going on. It's John, George, and Ringo as individuals. We're not even communicating with or making plans about Paul. We're just reacting to everything he does. It's a simple fact that he can't have his own way, so he's causing chaos. I don't care what you think of Klein. Call Klein something else. Call him Epstein for now. And just consider the fact that three of us chose Epstein. Paul was the same with Brian in the beginning, if you must know. He used to sulk and God knows what. Again, he's talking about Klein, not Brian. Yeah. And which is also supported by him taking a detour and saying, you know, and speaking of Epstein, Paul was the same with him. I.e. I wasn't talking about Brian just now. Right, now right, right, right. Like, it could not be clearer. There's no excuse for this. Tune in quotes, John. Three of us chose Epstein. Paul used to sulk, and God knows what. So then, tune in gives us another John quote. Paul wasn't that keen, bracket, on Brian, on bracket. He's more conservative the way he approaches things. He even says that. It's nothing he denies. That one is from the 1975 Hit Parader interview. Yeah, that second quote from 1975 also isn't necessarily about accepting Brian as manager. It is about the particular way Brian packaged the Beatles. Right. John didn't say Paul wasn't too keen on Brian. John said Paul wasn't too keen, period. And Lewison added on Brian in brackets. Mm-hmm. We'll read the full quote because we think the context is important here. So this is in response to the question, I'd like to clear up one of those myths about Brian Epstein packaging the Beatles. How true is that? This is partially what John says. Yeah, because he says a lot. It's very long. Okay, so I'm just going to cut into the relevant part. Outside of Liverpool, when we went down south in our leather outfits, the dance hall promoters didn't really like us. They thought we looked like a gang of thugs. So it got to be like Epstein said, look, if you wear a suit, 
and everybody wanted a good suit you know a nice sharp black suit man we liked the leather and the jeans but we wanted a good suit even to wear off stage yeah man i'll have a suit so if you wore a suit you'll get this much money all right i'll wear a suit i'll wear a fucking balloon if someone's gonna pay me <laughs> i'm not in love with the leather that much <laughs> wear a suit you'll get more money but brian was our salesman our front You'll notice that another quirk of life is, I may have read this somewhere, but self-made men usually have someone with education to front for them, to deal with all the other people with education. Now, Epstein had enough education to go in and deal with the hobnobs. And it's the same thing now. If I have a lawsuit, I have to get a lawyer. <laughs> Epstein fronted for the Beatles, and he played a great part at whatever he did. He was theatrical, that was for sure, and he believed in us but he certainly didn't package us the way they say he packaged us. He was good at his job to an extent. He wasn't the greatest businessman. But you have to look at this. If he was such a great packager, so clever at packaging products, whatever happened to Jerry and the pacemakers, Scylla Black and all the other packages? Where are they? Where are those packages? Only one package survived the original package. It was a mutual deal. You want to manage us? Okay, we'll let you. We allow you to. We weren't picked up off the street. We allowed him to take us. Paul wasn't that keen, but he's more conservative the way he approaches things. I mean, he even says that. It's nothing he denies. And that's all well and good. Maybe he'll end up with more yachts. But we allowed Epstein to package us. It wasn't the other way around. And the real answer to that question is where are all the other packages? And that goes for all the other myths about people creating us or doing things for us. Now, how do you read all that and take away that, quote, John was always emphatic that Paul didn't want Brian as manager and presented obstacles to destabilize him? I really don't know. I mean, if you wanted to write John suggested a couple times that Paul had some reservations at first, then that would be okay. Always emphatic, though. In John's hit parader quote, he's just going off on a tangent, trying to explain Brian's influence on the Beatles and his role in creating their image. And then in the middle of that, he mentions Paul's point of view. Doesn't even really sound like a criticism to me. Yeah, it kind of sounds like Paul knew that Brian wasn't yeah. a wizard. And exactly. he was right. And good for you, Paul. He didn't get carried away. He wasn't too keen. It sounds like he's just saying Paul didn't jump into the fire quite as quickly as we did. Not to mention, you know, he also concedes that maybe that's to Paul's benefit. Mm -hmm. As a not unimportant reminder, this is after the Beatles have finalized their divorce and John has ended his relationship with Klein and Klein has subsequently sued the Beatles. So yeah. he seems to at least have a hint of touche Paul here. And to his credit, Lewison does acknowledge Paul's relative caution in the subsequent paragraph. He writes, Paul's stance may in part have been a reaction to John's who always made snap judgments and leapt right in. It was a major and constant difference between them. Uh, he quotes Paul saying, John said to me once, look, 
imagine you're like on a clifftop and you're thinking about diving off. Dive! Try it! I said, like bloody hell I'm gonna dive. You dive and give us a shout <laughs> and tell me how it is and then if it's great, I'll dive. John always had a strong instinct to do that, but it's not my personality. Tune in goes on. Paul has confirmed that he asked Brian most of the questions about the contract. There had to be a signed agreement between them, but there wasn't one yet because Brian was still looking into it. All right, so at least Tunin does let Paul speak for himself, though there's no indication in the diving off the cliff quote that he was talking about Brian at all. That quote from Paul is from a 1990 interview with Lewison and Kevin Howlett. And we weren't able to find the quote in context. It's not in the book they published together. So he could have been talking about anything. Could have been talking about LSD, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. whatever. Trepanning. Yeah, right? <laughs> but strangely, Tunin seems to be giving John's opinion on Paul's thoughts. As represented by two quotes where he randomly mentioned Paul in the midst of a larger conversation. He's giving those quotes from John's equal weight. At least, if not more. And he definitely doesn't present as just theoretical his assertion that Paul presented obstacles to destabilize Brian to make his job difficult. Mm -hmm. Lewison is asserting that as fact, and he will continue to do so in many following passages. And then another problem is that he uses Paul's scrutiny of the contract as evidence of what? Paul's distrust? His ambition? Or what? Paul confirms he asked the most questions about the contract. Well, good for him? Like, does Lewison think that that's evidence Paul didn't want Brian? I I mean, I guess we still have to wait and see what the conclusion is there. Tudin also seems to have a very narrow view of leadership as diving off a cliff. The more traditional, brave, brazen approach of gut instinct and decisive action. But those are not the only signifiers of leadership. I think taking a more sober intellectual approach, actually vetting the people who are going to be in charge of your money, for example, is also an important form of leadership. Well, yes. I don't see how anyone would dispute that. Well, there are many people who definitely see leadership as primarily leading from your gut, you know, being aggressive on instinct. But again, that's not the full range of leadership. In fact, I think this is part of what makes John and Paul effective as co-leaders. Yes. Most of the best partnerships function very well because the partners can balance each other out in this way. And it's fine for John to complain about Paul's conscience, just as it's fine for Paul to complain about John's impulsiveness. But that doesn't mean that only one of them (laughs) is right. Yeah. They both needed the other for balance. Conflict can obviously be very good. You often need conflict to better think through your position and obviously 
two people presenting different standpoints can broaden each other's views. <laughs> I disagree with that viewpoint, Phoebe. <laughs> <laughs> let's, well, let's talk it about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then, of course, there is the bigger issue, which is that TuneIn has laid out a few reasons why Brian should be ideal for Paul, right? He's educated, he's Jewish. So we're set up with this idea that there's no obvious reason for Paul's hesitation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that it's unreasonable and unjustified. And that sets the stage for the Birkenhead strike. I'm walking. So now we will present the incident where Paul refuses to perform. By the way, we will not be making the case here that this is all Brian's fault. We're just pushing back on Tunin's portrayal of this incident as completely Paul's fault and questioning how Tunin uses it as a vehicle for all of its innuendo and insinuations that Paul is being deliberately obstructionist and hostile to Brian. We're going to read the whole passage. It's long, but dense with a lot to unpack, which we'll do afterward, point by point. So this all takes place on Friday, February 16th, 1962. <laughs> the Beatles are scheduled to perform the last of their three dances for the Liverpool University. Uh, Brian, as had become the norm, was picking them up in his Zodiac. John, mm -hmm. Paul, and George, anyway. Pete... Uh, is getting a ride with Neil in the equipment van. And here we go! From pages 837 to 840. The Beatles had a double shuffle this night. The final university date at the Technical College Hall in Birkenhead. And then a late headline booking for Sam Leach at New Brighton Tower. Brian stopped in Woolton to collect John. He dropped down to speak for George. And then he turned back to Allerton for Paul. But when George knocked on the door at 24th Lynn Road, Paul shouted, Tell Brian I'm not ready, and I'll be a while. Brian's response was the one Paul could have anticipated. Well, he should be ready. I said I'd be here at 8, and it's past 8. George gave Paul another knock and told him to hurry. After a further wait, Brian said George should tell Paul they were going to town for a quick drink before taking the tunnel to Birkenhead. Paul would have to get himself there by other means. Brian, John, and George went to the beehive, and John used a public box to call Paul, returning with the message, he says he's not coming. Brian must have been apoplectic. They'd be unable to play the booking, letting down the university and their paying audience, embarrassing Brian ruining their chance of a rebooking and undoing his repair work to the Beatles' old bad reputation. Bryant went back to his office to phone Paul, but Paul refused to speak. Jim informed Brian that Paul said he wouldn't be turning up, and that was that. Recalling the night five years later, Paul told of how, having discovered Brian and the others hadn't waited outside his house for him, he decided, fuck them, if they can't be arsed waiting for me, I can't be arsed going after them. So I sat down. 
and watch telly. Lewison then continues, Jim was unable to persuade Paul to change his mind. Paul said he felt he'd always been the keen one, so now he'd go sharp the other way and make no effort at all. John saw a bigger picture, and it would be surprising if it wasn't equally obvious or made obvious to Brian and George. John likened Paul's enduring snag with Brian to his other long-standing difficulty, saying, Brian and Paul didn't get along. It was a bit like Stuart and Paul between the two of them. Inevitably, this wouldn't be the only dispute to arise between Brian and a beetle in their years together, but it is one of the few to be known, and its timing is telling. Brian devoted more than a page to it in his autobiography, saying how, quote, worried, angry, and upset, unquote, he was. The university triple booking was giving the Beatles prestige, earning them good money, and presenting them to new audiences in good venues and Paul had chosen this moment to make a stand. John took a benign view. He might deal with it his own way, probably a knowing word to Paul at some point, but he also wanted to see how Brian reacted, unaided, to being tested. John's cruelty was bruising and obvious. Paul's dissent was cutting and concealed, which made him trickier to manage. The testy way his and Brian's relationship had started in late 1961 was the way it set. Brian crystallized it in 1964, calling it our clash of personalities. Paul can be temperamental and moody and difficult to deal with. He is a great one for not wishing to hear about things. Lewison then adds in parentheses, not that Brian was always an angel himself. The Beatles' non-appearance was reported in the student's paper, Guild Gazette, instead of becoming only the second newspaper to review a Beatles show, and probably the first to give them more than two lines. It noted how, quote, the organizers were besieged by bedecked totties demanding the Beatles or their money. They got their money, unquote. The dance was open to all and had been advertised in the Echo two nights back. Brian hastened to offer a make-good Beatles appearance, squeezed in the following Friday and played for nothing. Paul did allow himself to be persuaded out to the tower late this first evening, so they didn't also let down Sam Leach's customers. Harsh words were had, and it's clear that Paul's test of Brian's resolve did, however briefly, endanger the Beatles' future. Brian's commitment to the cause of creating their fame and fortune could not have been more emphatically established before Paul threw his spanner in the works. So he, Brian, felt steeled to talk sternly. While he later wrote of how he, quote-unquote, toyed with the idea of saying he'd quit if this was the way they were going to behave, Paul's brother Mike said he actually did tell them. Tunin then quotes Mike here as saying the following. The Beatles were still turning up late and missing their spot every now and again, mostly because of Paul. Brian Epstein stood this for a while, then he issued an ultimatum. They must improve their attitude, or he was abandoning their management. Yeah, okay. Whew. Okay, so we're going to break this down point by point, and we will just start at the top. This is TuneIn's version. 
After a further wait, Brian said George should tell Paul they were going into town for a quick drink before taking the tunnel to Birkenhead. Paul would just have to get there by other means. Brian, John, and George went to the Beehive, and John used a public box to call Paul, returning with a message, he says he's not coming. So this whole thing is a paraphrase or a retelling of what Brian says in A Cellar Full of Noise. We are going to now read some relevant portions from A Cellar Full of Noise that were not included in TuneIn's account. Some details that we think very much shed some sympathetic light on why Paul refused to go. From pages 69 to 70 of A Cellar Full of Noise, Brian writes, I said, George, tell Paul we're going to the Beehive for a drink, and if he likes, he can get the bus to the city center, the train to Birkenhead, and another bus to the technical college. We went to the Beehive pub, and from there, one of the Beatles telephoned Paul. I believe it was John. He came back from the phone and said, Paul now says he's not coming. He's very annoyed at having to get the train and the bus. Uh, yeah. So the bus and the train and another bus is a pretty important detail. It's important to note that Brian is not leaving Paul behind so that he and the other Beatles can rush to the gig on time and start without him and salvage the show. That is not mm -hmm. what's going on here. Mm -hmm. Because TuneIn itself tells us that without Paul, the Beatles are unable to play that booking. So apparently they have to wait for him anyway. So sending Paul on a three-stop public transport journey is not going to save them time. Brian is leaving Paul behind to go to the pub before they all drive to the show. And I did a little research, and assuming it's the same pub, the Beehive is five miles from 24th Lynn Road. So there is absolutely no reason for Brian to tell Paul, you can take the bus and the train and another bus instead of telling Paul, no pre-show drink for you, Paul. Yeah. See you in half an hour. I'll be back. There's no reason for the new plan to not be swinging back for Paul after they've had their drinks or whatever. No reason at all unless brian is trying to teach paul a lesson yeah because he's angry yeah so this is purely punitive and in brian's account john says paul says he's not coming he's very annoyed at having to take the train and the bus tunin leaves it with he says he's not coming which i think is an oversight because it's important for us to know why paul says he's not coming he's annoyed about the train and the bus. Tune in continues. Brian must have been apoplectic. They'd be unable to play the booking, letting down the university and their paying audience, embarrassing him, ruining their chance of a rebooking, and undoing his repair work to the Beatles' old bad reputation. Wow, that's terrible. Um, but here's the thing. None of that's actually true because all Brian had to do was calm down drive back to Paul's, make nice, and they could all go to the gig. And just to point out the obvious, if there's ample time for Paul to take two buses and a train, then there's also plenty of time for Brian to swing back to Fortland Road for Paul. And Paul knows it, which would maybe explain why he was incensed at Brian's behavior. 
how else is he supposed to respond to his own new manager saying fine i just won't give you a ride to your own show then and taking off for the bar yes it's a punishment brian doesn't even present the option of paul catching up to them at the beehive five miles away he goes directly to well here's your bus route loser (laughs) also in brian's book he quotes himself as saying tell paul we're going for a drink and if he likes he can get the bus etc etc i mean who knows if that's an exact recollection of his exact words but i think it's still worth asking is it possible that paul thought brian was saying yeah come if you want but we'll play without you if we have to Mm. whether or not that's what brian intended that might be what paul heard yeah that would be that would be very hurtful and upsetting yeah because he doesn't he doesn't call up and say okay fine tell him that we left and we're having drinks now and we'll be Mm -hmm. back at such and such time but we're not going to sit and wait outside his house exactly exactly that would be one thing if he's like tell paul we're coming back in an hour and he needs to be standing outside his door yeah i understand brian being upset and frustrated i do and i don't think this is a blight on his character i don't think this is an unforgivable thing i just think that he is partly to blame for them missing their show plus you know there's a time and a place yeah and if you've got a show to play then brian needs to just table that and get his star to the show and then read him the riot act afterwards yet to borrow a phrase from lewison he took this moment to make a stand and you could say the same for paul like maybe paul should have tabled his own annoyance about the bus and the train in the interest of professionalism and just gotten himself to the show and then had it out with brian afterward however you know taking the train and the bus is obviously more inconvenient and humiliating for paul than driving back and forth on road would have been brian there's no way around it brian is escalating the situation here he's not solving the problem yeah also when lewison writes brian must have been apoplectic he is empathizing completely with brian because there's never a point in the telling of this incident and tune in where he does the same for paul he never asks us to imagine how paul felt nope so by putting himself in brian's shoes he's asking the reader to do the same in fact a couple paragraphs later tuning quotes brian saying he was worried angry and upset about it which puts us even more firmly in his shoes absolutely and then lewison gives us a big old laundry list of all the terrible consequences you know they're unable to play they're letting down the university they're embarrassing brian ruining their chances undoing his repair work you know it's a bit much yeah tuning continues with this brian went back to his office to phone paul but paul refused to speak jim informed brian that paul said he wouldn't be turning up and that was that which is very interesting because this is how brian tells it in his book a cellar full of noise I spoke to his father, a very charming and gentle person, who said Paul was upset and would not be able to attend the show. Paul, however, relented. We gathered the other Beatles and we rushed 
to New Brighton Tower, where we were able to catch up and give the university concert. All right, so the Beatles did, in fact, perform the second show that night. Brian and Paul must have talked it through, presumably. They both buried the hatchet, and Brian took all of them to the later show. Brian says Paul was upset, and, like, upset to the point that he won't be able to perform. Which, you know, I would just like to ask, how would that feel? Imagine you're 19 and you're in a band and your manager says, F you, take the bus, bitch. And like takes the rest of the band to the bar. Yeah. I would be very upset. Like, I'm sure Paul was angry, but I have to imagine he was hurt also. I agree. And worried about what this means what's what this means yeah and also tune in frames that as jim was unable to persuade paul exactly. to go which is very weird to me because do we framing, even know that jim tried we don't well, know that but lewis's framing most definitely implies that Jim wasn't on Paul's side mm-hmm. and that Jim For was sure. was like stop being a baby son and go do your job yeah. which we don't know that that's the case at all Jim might be like that's messed up yeah don't take the bus that's bullshit does he understand how important you are to this band yeah we definitely have no reason to think that wasn't how Jim felt on the other hand, maybe Jim did try to persuade Paul to perform. Yeah, that is possible. But it's messed up to imply that Paul's family is not on his side when you don't provide any evidence of that. So, Tunin does report Paul's perspective with a single quote from the Hunter Davies book. Here is what Lewison writes. Recalling the night five years later, Paul told of how Having discovered Brian and the others hadn't waited outside his house for him, he decided, quote, fuck them. If they can't be arsed to wait for me, I can't be arsed going after them. So I sat down and watched telly, unquote. Back to Tune In's account. Jim was unable to persuade Paul to change his mind. Paul said he'd felt he'd always been the keen one. So now he'd go sharp the other way and make no effort at all. Okay, so it's good Paul gets to comment, Um, but again, that's it. Tune in offers not so much as a word of support. And Lewison also chose to just paraphrase the bulk of what Paul had to say about this in the Hunter Davies bio. We'll read the rest of that in a moment, but the brief quote he does provide, he has actually cut a part out of with no ellipse, as usual. Paul's full quote is, So I said, fuck them, temperamental fool that I was. If they can't be arsed waiting for me, then I can't be arsed going after them. So in my opinion, Paul calling himself a temperamental fool in retrospect serves to make him more sympathetic, because I always appreciate it when a person can self-roast their younger (laughs) self. But... It also could lead the reader to believe that Paul still, in 1967, is hanging on to this story and that fuck them for not waiting for me is 
still Paul's attitude to life in 1967. <laughs> He's still mad about it. Yeah, which would make Paul look bad. So, you know, if TuneIn wants to make a big two and a half page meal out of this Birkenhead incident, then he should give us everything that Paul McCartney ever said about it. So let's look at the rest of what Paul said to Hunter Davies about this incident. I'd always been the keenie, the one who was always eager, chatting up management and making announcements. Perhaps I was being big headed at first, or perhaps I was better at doing it than the others. Anyway, it always seemed to be me. Davies continues, it led to an argument between Paul and Brian, but nothing serious. Paul was soon back to being the keeny, saying, I realized that I was being more false by not making the effort. So, Lewison omits Paul's self-effacing comment, paraphrases Paul briefly, but doesn't bother to quote him on feeling like the keeny, and instead opts to immediately undercut Paul's perspective by pivoting to what, apparently, John Lennon's opinion of it all was. Paul says he was annoyed at being left behind and that he felt his extra efforts were being taken for granted. But, as Lewison immediately tells us, John saw a bigger picture. So he sides with John's alleged interpretation of this event, but is John even talking about this particular event? Mm. Well, let's go back and see. Tune in says... John saw a bigger picture, and it would be surprising if it wasn't equally obvious or made obvious to Brian and George. John likened Paul's enduring snag with Brian to his other long-standing difficulty, saying, Brian and Paul didn't get along. It was a bit like Stuart and Paul between the two of them. Ah-ha-ha! So this is the answer to the puzzle, finally. Paul doesn't want Brian for the same reasons he didn't want Stuart in the band. Brian's a crappy bassist. I'll defend Brian's bass playing <laughs> to the death. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This quote of John's was pulled from the notorious St. Regis interview of 1971. In the fog of how do you sleep and the lawsuit during what is universally considered the nadir of John and Paul's relationship. John spends a large portion of this interview talking up Alan Klein and painting Paul as unreasonable and difficult to manage. Again, Klein and Lennon are in a PR war with Paul at this time. Here is John's full quote from St. Regis, found on page 95 of the print version if you want to follow along in your book. <laughs> your book of the St. Regis interview? Yes. Which is <laughs> which what I'm, I'm sure I'm... everyone has. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. This is John Lennon. Okay. Brian got us to EMI. It was his walking around. If he hadn't gone around London on foot with the tapes under his arm and gone from place to place and place to place and finally to George Martin, we never would have made it because because we didn't have the push to do it on our own. Paul was more aggressive in that way. Let's think of publicity stunts or jump in the Mersey or something like that in those kind of terms to make it. So Brian and Paul got along well in that respect, you know? 
But he and Paul didn't get along a lot, too, because anybody who's got anything to say, Paul hates. Like Stuart Sutcliffe, Paul hated him. And they ended up fighting on stage. Paul was saying something about Stu's girl, and he was jealous because she was a great girl. And Stu hit him on stage. And Stu wasn't a violent guy at all. So it was a bit like that between the two of them as well. Okay, from that passage, all that Lewison extracted was Brian and Paul didn't get along, period. It was a bit like Stuart and Paul between the two of them, period. Which I think it's fair to say is misleading since John literally says in a single breath, Brian and Paul got along well regarding publicity and promotion, but he and Paul didn't get along a lot too yes and what can we say like i think the problem with using only half <laughs> of this paul and brian got along well but they also didn't get along <laughs> the problem with that is pretty self-explanatory uh and this is not the only time lewison has done this there was that partial reporting of cynthia's quote where she essentially said john was the leader but he and paul came to share decisions you know, we only mm -hmm. got the leader Lenin part, of course. And then a bit later in this episode, we will talk about another example of this. A real doozy of an example. <laughs> Beyond that, though, I don't even know what point Lewison is, is trying to make with this quote, other than to simply force a connection in readers' minds between Stuart and Brian. And as we've already covered, tune in in a very heavy-handed fashion portrays the Stuart and Paul feud as entirely Paul's fault and rooted in Paul's jealousy of Stu and John's friendship. So I can only assume Lewison is trying to tell us or remind us here that Paul is irrationally difficult and jealous. Although, to be fair, I don't know what John's point is either. He's in the midst right. of talking about Brian's management and he just gets sidetracked for a second talking about Paul and how he didn't get along with Stuart and then goes back to talking about Brian. Um, for reference, after this, he goes on to say Brian had hellish tempers and fits and lockouts. And that's after claiming that Brian, quote, ripped them off on the previous page. And needless to say, none of those comments about Brian are quoted in Tune In. <laughs> Uh, right, because I feel like it's sort of universally understood that John goes off sometimes, and you you have to take what he says with a pinch of salt. In fact, there's a, another point when talking about the <laughs> the much touted <laughs> fight over suits between John and and Brian, where Lewis and does comment on that very thing. And as we've said before, footnotes are awesome. If enterprising readers bother to look at the footnotes, they will see the source and the year of this quote from John's, which we definitely appreciate. But TuneIn doesn't always relegate citations to the footnotes. It frequently does give a heads up within the text on the year and source of quotes, but never on these breakup era criticisms of Paul by John. Mm-hmm which in our opinion would would be the place you'd most want to give maximum <laughs> context yes yes and especially since paul again as a beetle deserves equal representation 
and tune in. So just as, you know, as a quick example, I won't read the whole thing, but when John is talking about how we sold out, Brian put us in suits, Lewis in comments, that this statement was made in the midst of a wider rant in 1970. John's words appear irrefutable, though his concluding remark was formed with an accumulation of emotive factors, not just the suits. So he's, you know, he's reporting John's words, but he's also qualifying them as being part of a larger rant from 1970, when John was experiencing an accumulation of emotive factors. And then in the next paragraph, he actually contradicts John's account. He says, Despite John's comments in 1970 and 71, it seems they not only went into suits, they went eagerly into suits. Yeah, well, he has to say that because the hit parader yes. quote we just read where he says, I'll wear a fucking balloon if you pay me more. No, in 1975, he's saying, we all wanted a suit. I wanted a suit. Give me a suit. In 1970, he was grandstanding and saying, I fought for the leather. The suits were a selling out. I yeah, regret it. Suits yeah. weren't cool in 1970. Right. I mean, it's clear that John doesn't have a leg to stand on there. And the fact that he's like singling out Paul as like making him wear a suit <laughs> is that's ridiculous. <laughs> give me a break. Yes, well, that's the thing. Lewison does give us a break <laughs> about the suits because of the times and because John was ranting and having emotive factors. <laughs> you know, he lets us know this quote is from 1970. Um but he doesn't do the same ever when it's about Paul and Brian and management, which is a much more controversial and delicate and important topic. Yeah. So John's quote about Paul and Brian is presented as the truth, as the bigger picture, even though it's from the same ranting, emotive interview as the Suits quote, using Lewison's own logic and the allowances he gives for john's emotive factors mm -hmm. how can we possibly say that john's retroactive opinion on paul's attitude toward brian's management is objective yeah there are also four further examples in tune in where john's quotes are identified in the text as being from 1970 or 1971 and in our Leader Lennon episode, we read how a Lennon Remembers quote about George was reported in Tudin. John said, I couldn't be bothered with him. He used to follow me around like a bloody kid hanging around all the time. And it took me years to come around to him and start considering him as an equal. And Lewison takes care to immediately qualify that despite this frank, if uncharitable purge of his feelings, John did want George in the group. That's on page 237, if you want to get a little refresher. So Lewison definitely realizes that sometimes John's statements need to be contextualized. And that John could be affected by his feelings of the moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, at least he recognizes that's true regarding Brian and George. But perhaps he thinks John has no emotive factors or uncharitable feelings to purge about Paul. In 1971. Mm -hmm. He's just pure, cold rationality and reason right through in 1971 about Paul. Yeah. So 
Lennon Remembers and St. Regis are both interviews you have to kind of handle with kid gloves. And for instance, on our podcast, we've quoted them both many times, but we always try to tell you where those quotes come from in the midst of the conversation because it's important context. But getting back to the whole takeaway and the whole reason why this quote was even selected in the first place, you know, the question mm -hmm. of like, what is being implied here? What did John mean by it was a bit like that between them two? Yeah, what is the that he's talking about? Exactly. John said, anyone who has anything to say, Paul hates. Which, you know, surely we can all agree is hyperbole. But I think if we're going to read anything out of this comparison, which again, I don't know that we should, because it sounds really like nothing more than a half formed thought to me, like a, tan yeah. you know, sort of unrelated tangent. But if we did take something away from it, I think it would be that John is implying that Paul hated Stuart because he, quote, had something to say. But is that why Paul hated Stuart? Because Stuart had something to say? I also take exception to Tunin's blowing off Paul's explanation of his own motives by immediately saying that John saw the bigger picture. Because what he says in that Hunter Davies quote, truncated though it is, that he felt fed up with being seen as the keen one, that makes perfect sense to me. Mm-hmm. If Paul feels like his efforts and his enthusiasm are being taken for granted, like everyone assumes that, well, good old Paul, he's committed <laughs> and so ambitious that he'll just put up with any and all inconveniences, which he has done in the past. Mm -hmm. he, he puts in more hours. He's taken on the bass permanently and previously drums, even though he didn't want to. Mm -hmm. And in the future, he's not going to fight being assigned as Ringo's roomie by George you know he 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 can definitely be a team player yeah I know that that's not that's the not how we narrative. yeah yeah I know that that's not how he's seen but it's true and if it's true then it makes perfect sense for him eventually to get fed up and to draw a line at the inconveniences he's not willing to accept like being told to take the bus as a punishment for being late yeah. So I find it disrespectful to dismiss Paul's explanation of his own motives in order to endorse and aggrandize John's interpretation of Paul's motives. Yes. And also Lewis's choice of words definitely implies that John immediately saw mm. an obvious similarity between Paul's antipathy towards Stuart and Brian. Mm hmm. He writes, John saw a bigger picture. He likened Paul's enduring snag with Brian to his other long-standing difficulty. Long-standing difficulty, okay? Not that John made a tenuous link between Brian and Stewart once in 1971, which would be more <laughs> accurate, okay? But not only that. It's so obvious that John couldn't have failed to notice immediately the similarities. Yeah, he's making the yeah. connection at the time is what that implies. And then Lewison also writes, it would be surprising if it wasn't equally obvious or made obvious to Brian and George. Like it's what? so blatantly obvious that everybody should be making the same connection. Including Brian who met Stuart once. What? 
Everyone except Paul, obviously. Yeah. Lewison assumes Brian and George made the same connection in 1961 that John made in 1971. Why would they? Especially Brian. Good what? grief. And then he also writes that Paul had an, an enduring snag with Brian, which I don't think is fair, even though Paul always was the hardest to please Beatle, and that's not a secret. Mm-hmm. Brian himself said he loved Paul, and he and we know that they got pretty close in later years. Not to mention, Lewis and himself writes in the very next line that it was one of the few disputes ever known between Brian and a Beatle. So it doesn't sound like there's multiple disputes over many years. Okay. He then writes, Brian devoted more than a page to it in his autobiography, saying how, quote, worried, angry, and upset, unquote, he was. Yes, Brian wrote he was worried, angry, and upset, but does Lewison not think that Paul was also worried, angry, and upset? That his manager ditched him and went to the bar with his bandmates? Like, I don't understand why that doesn't get any space or consideration. Well, yeah, Brian himself gives that consideration to Paul in A Cellar Full of Noise, as we read. He says that Jim told him Paul was so upset that he would not be able to attend. That doesn't get into tune in. He just tells us Paul isn't coming. He doesn't say anything about Paul's father saying he's upset. Why are Paul's feelings so incredibly unimportant, so completely unworthy of a mention, to a Beatles biographer? And why is Lewison treating this like Brian is not accountable for his own behavior? Brian himself takes responsibility in his book. Mm-hmm. He wrote that the Birkenhead event brought home to him that he had to be more conscientious about treating all the Beals fairly. Right. That's how he introduces this whole story in A Cellar Full of Noise. He wrote, I have no favorites among the Beatles, and this they realize now but it wasn't always so. A manager dealing with a close-knit foursome has to be as fair as and as cautious as a father of four children. And one night, very early in my management of the Beatles, this was brought home to me with an unpleasant thump. And then he tells the story of the Birkenhead strike. So why not frame the story that way in Tune In? Right. In the two and a half pages Lewis and Spence on the Birkenhead strike, where he speculates all up and down the page about Paul's motives, using divorce-era John Lennon quotes and truncating Paul's own quotes about it, when all along Brian Epstein told you point-blank the root of this conflict, a perception of favoritism. Mm-hmm. And that's why it is so important to remember all the Beatles were often late. But as far as we know, Paul was the only one who was ever told to take the bus. So, yeah, if Brian responds differently when Paul is late versus when, for example, John is late, maybe that would fuel Paul's irritation. Mm -hmm. Do we think there are any circumstances under which Brian would ever have told John to take the bus and a train and another bus i think everyone would agree that's a pretty far-fetched scenario Mm -hmm. and if paul knows that 
yeah, then maybe that's what he's reacting to. He didn't just randomly cancel on the rest of the Beatles. Yes, Paul was running late, which is annoying and inconsiderate. But Brian then escalated the situation and pushed Paul into a corner. That's just a fact. Even if you believe Paul, you know, deserved to be yelled at or lectured or punished even, Brian was the one who escalated. Yeah, and I just want to reiterate here that, yeah, Paul was running late, but he wasn't risking making them late to their gig. He was risking making them late to their drinks, which is pretty different, I think. We're not saying Paul's blameless. But leaving Paul was Brian's choice. So framing it as Paul had chosen this moment to make a stand makes no sense. Brian took this situation, upped the ante, and presented Paul with an option. Mm-hmm. Either you let me treat you like a naughty child, let me smack you with a newspaper in front of the other boys, Yep. take the bus and another bus and the train, and show up with your head hung low or do something about it, Paul. And I feel like that is so, isn't that just obvious? Like in human interaction, if someone does something you don't like and you overreact, like it's it's understood that if you, if you bluff, you might get called on your bluff. So Lewison writes, the university triple booking was giving the Beatles prestige, earning them good money and presenting them to new audiences in good venues. So if this was such a big deal and Brian was so excited and worried about it, why wouldn't he make sure that the bassist and singer got to the show on time? Why would he suddenly rely on public transportation to get Paul to the show? And what does its timing is telling mean? Is he implying that Paul is deliberately sabotaging his own band's success? That's what it sounds like. Continuing on, John took a benign view. He might deal with it in his own way, probably with a knowing word to Paul at some point. But he also wanted to see how Brian reacted, unaided, to being tested. John's cruelty was bruising and obvious. Paul's dissent was cutting and concealed, which made him trickier to manage. The testy way Paul and Brian's relationship had started in late 1961 was the way it set. Brian crystallized it in 1964 as, quote, our clash of personalities. Paul can be temperamental and moody and difficult to deal with. He is a great one for not wishing to hear about things, unquote. Lewison then adds a parenthetical, not that Brian was always an angel himself. Okay, so it's good that Lewison tried to even the playing field a little bit here by saying Brian wasn't always an angel. Well, or at least pays lip service to that idea. (laughs) Well, he doesn't offer any details. Right. I mean, he could have used John's quotes from 1970 in Lennon Remembers about how Brian was difficult to live with and 
threw a lot of tantrums and was very insecure. Or when he said in St. Regis that Brian would vanish for days and the whole business would fucking stop. Uh, well, to be fair, I am I am not mad about TuneIn not endorsing John's use of tantrums to describe Brian's behavior. That's just John being unnecessarily dismissive and probably a little homophobic too. Well, I agree with you, but that's my whole point. Both of those interviews should be used cautiously. Yeah, so again, tantrums? No, thank you. However, plenty of people, people who like Brian, people who love Brian, have commented that Brian was moody and could be unreasonable and get confrontational. Yeah, so I appreciate that Lewison indicated that Brian could be volatile. Sort of. He says Brian wasn't always an angel, which is virtually meaningless. It could mean anything, and it comes right after calling Paul specific things cutting, concealed, tricky to manage, moody, temperamental, difficult to deal with. Well, so that's a good point. Nevertheless, I think it's fair to include Brian's quote about Paul being temperamental and moody and difficult to deal with. Definitely. Oh, yeah, it should be in here. And it yeah. sheds light on why... Brian might have not always made the greatest choices when dealing with Paul in the beginning. Well, if if Paul is temperamental and moody, and so is Brian, <laughs> then <laughs> guess what? Sometimes yeah. they're going to rub each other the wrong way. Totally. Yes. Sometimes people's moodiness meshes well, like Paul and John's, and sometimes it does not. That's just life. And as long as neither party is being actively cruel to the other, we don't need to assign blame. So John's cruelty was bruising and obvious, but Paul's dissent was cutting and concealed. I mean, I agree with Lewison that dissent and cruelty are two very different things. I just don't think I agree with how he differentiates them. Okay. From my point of view, dissent would make a client challenging to work with, certainly, but cruelty i think is something that no one should have to tolerate from a client but here dissent is framed as worse than cruelty and furthermore i don't see any evidence that paul's dissent was either of those things cutting as in scathing or concealed is lewison saying that paul is trying to hide his dissent and if so how exactly and what is he concealing? Maybe he didn't intentionally choose a word that implies Paul is sneaky and underhanded without any substantiation. Maybe he meant to write Paul's dissent was indirect, but he just got caught up in the alliteration of cutting and concealed and went with that. Well, but cutting really makes no sense either. How is it cutting to say, Nope, I'm not coming. Stubborn, sure. Reactionary, maybe even immature, but cutting? It's not like he's insulting Brian. Uh, refusing to perform is pretty straightforward. Uh, there's exactly. nothing mean about it. So yeah, neither word makes sense. And here's my biggest problem with Tunin's use of the Brian quote. It is in my opinion, the most egregious example of giving a partial quote that we have discovered so far in TuneIn. 
Yes, Brian describes Paul as moody, temperamental, and difficult to deal with, but he does not leave it there. He goes on to say, but Paul has enormous talent and inside he has a great tenderness and great feeling, which are sometimes concealed by an angry exterior. I believe that he is the most obviously charming beetle with strangers, autograph hunters, fans, and other artists. He has a magnificent smile and an eagerness, both of which he uses not for effect, but because he knows they are assets which will bring happiness to those around him. Paul is very much a world star, very musical, with a voice more melodic than John's and therefore more commercially acceptable. Also, and this is vital to me, he has great loyalty to the other Beatles and to the organization around him. Therefore, I ignore his moods and hold him in high esteem. I would not care to lose him as a friend. So Paul is loyal to the organization around him, mm -hmm. i.e. Brian. He's not, he's not uh, destabilizing the organization around him. Just going to point that out there. So it is so unfair for TuneIn only to report the moody, temperamental, and difficult part, and then to opine that the testy way Paul and Brian's relationship had started in late 1961 was the way it set. That is so inequitable, especially in contrast to how whenever John has conflict, very much including with Brian, we are all, mm. always left with a snapshot of how it all turned out all right in the end because everyone loves John and they patched it up and it was all good. Yeah, contrast that with John yelling something anti-Semitic at Brian, after which Lewison immediately reminds us that it was also typical of John Lennon that he would lacerate with one breath and forget it the next and still have a close rapport with that person. That's from page 550. So Lewison is happy to apply hindsight in order to mitigate John's aggressive or rude conflicts with people. But when it's Paul, he says that that's the way their relationship set. Even though, in this quote from Brian, Brian is calling Paul moody, temperamental, and difficult to deal with as a springboard to talk about how they have, nonetheless, come to an understanding. And he has great respect and affection for Paul. Yes, to quote Brian directly, he also said Paul had great tenderness, great feeling, and great loyalty. So their relationship did not set in the testy way it started. Nope. And Lewis in writing, Brian crystallized it in 1964 as our clash of personalities. That is even more blatantly misleading because that suggests Brian said in 1964 that their relationship was still set and crystallized in a state of testy conflict. We gave another example of this in our last episode, A Prolonged Jealousy. There, Lewison wrote that Astrid, along with Klaus and Stuart's family, disliked Paul, and Stuart's death slammed a lid on it, even though by 1963, Astrid is including Paul in her invitation to vacation in Tenerife, and will say nice things about him in Hunter Davies, and for the rest of her life. So why does Lewison repeatedly choose to frame Paul as permanently 
disliked by important people in the Beatles story when there is evidence to the contrary. Why? And as far as Brian and John's relationship goes, I, I mean, the obvious question to me is that if Paul is watching John being cruel and bruising, you know, to quote Lewison, his cruelty was bruising and obvious, and yet Paul sees that Brian still loves John most and gives John what he wants, what incentive does Paul have to make overly nicey-nice when he has conflict with Brian or wants something? Maybe he figures, well, the soft touch doesn't appear to be the right way to go with Brian. Well, and it also sounds like even though Brian can call Paul on being moody and difficult, he also seems to be offering a bit of a mea culpa because he says a manager dealing with a close-knit foursome has to be as fair and as cautious as a father of four children. And one night, very early in my management of the Beatles, this was brought home to me with an unpleasant thump. Right. And again, that part was not quoted or even paraphrased in Tune In. What's also strange is that Tunin has previously noted that Brian was unusually uh, exacting <laughs> about punctuality. On page 743, at their very first meeting at NEMS, Tunin reads, Wooler was personally embarrassed the Beatles had turned up late and lubricated, and Brian, a pathological stickler for punctuality, would not have been impressed either. So is it possible that Brian's personal issue is contributing to this conflict? Hmm. I mean, Lewison calls it pathological. That's his word. So I wonder if this is what he meant when he wrote Brian's reaction was the one Paul could have anticipated. Hmm. Like maybe Lewison is sort of acknowledging that this was a bit extreme of a reaction on Brian's part, but it's still Paul's fault because he should have known this about Brian by now, that he was a pathological stickler. Well, if Paul is expected to know by now that Brian is pathologically punctual, wouldn't Brian also know by now that Paul is the world's worst timekeeper and it's nothing personal? Hmm. Or is Tunin suggesting it's Paul's job to anticipate and accommodate his manager's temperament? Seems to me that if one party is pathologically punctual and another is the world's worst timekeeper, mm. that there's naturally and inevitably going to be some conflict. Yeah. And that's going to require patience and, and compromise on both their parts. Which it seems like they achieved pretty quickly, with a few exceptions, a few bumps at first, like this incident. But that is not shocking, surely. And even this incident, they resolved the same night. Like, it started and blew over within, what, six hours? Yeah, or less. And to be clear, we don't think this is an unforgivable violation on Brian's part. We're pulling it apart in this episode because TuneIn makes a big deal of it and uses it as a vehicle for telling us all these other wild theories about Paul. I do think it's probably instructive to how brian manages the beatles going forward and also maybe to how brian and paul deal with each other 
but we're not saying this is a, a huge, terrible incident. Yeah, and it seems pretty absurd to hinge the theory that their relationship set in this testy way on this one incident. Let's discuss how Lewison waits until the second-to-last paragraph of this long passage to admit that the Beatles only missed one of the two shows that night, and that they made up that missed show the following week. Tune in reads. Brian hastened to offer a make-good Beatles appearance, squeezed in the following Friday, and played for nothing. Paul did allow himself to be persuaded out to the tower later this first evening so they didn't also let down Sam Leach's customers. So here, Lewison finally does acknowledge that they only missed the one show and that Brian and Paul made up in time for the second show of the evening, but only after framing the entire incident in TuneIn as exclusively Paul's fault and possibly deliberate sabotage characterizing the missed gig as an utter disaster, prioritizing Brian's perspective over Paul's, and using unrelated or tangentially related breakup era commentary from John without dating those quotes within the text. Interesting choices. Okay, final paragraph. Harsh words were had, and it's clear that Paul's test of Brian's resolve did, however briefly, endanger the Beatles' future. Brian's commitment to the cause of creating their fame and fortune could not have been more emphatically established before Paul threw his spanner in the works, so Brian felt steeled to talk sternly. Okay. okay. <laughs> now, the next thing is a bit strange. Tudin definitely indicates that a certain sentence is a direct quote from Mike McCartney. Tunin continues. While Brian later wrote of how he, quote, toyed, unquote, with the idea of saying he'd quit if this was the way they were going to behave, Paul's brother Mike said he actually did tell them. Quote, the Beatles were turning up late and missing their spot every now and again, mostly because of Paul. Brian Epstein stood this for a while then he issued an ultimatum they must improve their attitude or he was abandoning their management unquote well that's very strange because tunin cites this source as being from mike's essay portrait of paul from woman magazine but every single online source we found of this essay does not match what's in tunin it's very similar to what's in mike's essay but to me, it just seems like it's a paraphrase rather than a direct quote. It's possible, I guess, that Mike edited the essay and published it in another magazine somewhere. But Tunin specifically cites Woman magazine. Maybe it's just a punctuation error. Like it was, it is Lewison's paraphrase, but it just got accidentally punctuated as a direct quote. That'd be my guess. Which, if that's the case, it's not a huge deal. This is a massive work. There are bound to be formatting errors. No big. Anyway, here's what you will find online if you search for Mike's essay. He writes, 
few people know just how near Paul, for example, came to wrecking the Beatles early on. To say that they were all very slack is, in fact, a sort of major understatement. They were nutty slack. In Liverpool, I should explain, the groups would play several engagements at several different clubs and dance halls during an evening. As the Beatles got slacker and slacker, they kept turning up later and later at the clubs. Once or twice, they turned up so late that they missed their spot altogether. Unhappily, a great deal of this was Paul's fault, though to be fair, he wasn't always to blame. Brian stood this for a while, then he gave the entire group an ultimatum. Either you change your attitude, or we split. The Beatles didn't need to think about it. By this time, they realized they needed each other. So Tunin's version of Mike's quote doesn't include the phrase, to be fair, Paul wasn't always to blame. No. And Mike doesn't actually mention the Birkenhead incident. I think one may reasonably assume that's what he's referencing when he says just how near Paul, for example, came to wrecking the Beatles early on. But to be clear... Mike makes no mention of a standoff or a strike or a dispute or a refusal to perform. Yeah, he does say once or twice. Once or twice they missed their spot. And and we get some accounts of those in tune in. They missed their spot with Brian as manager because they were all being dumb, but not on purpose. Yeah, he's like, my brother's a dumbass, mm-hmm. which is way different. <laughs> There's one more thing we should discuss, and that is Tunin's view that the Birkenhead strike was orchestrated by Paul to, quote-unquote, test Brian. Lewison writes this explicitly twice in the text. He says, It's clear that Paul's test of Brian's resolve did, however, briefly endanger the Beatles' future, and he asserts that John also wanted to see how Brian reacted unaided to being tested. Now... Mike does corroborate Lewison's assertion that Paul's tardiness briefly endangered the Beatles' future, but nowhere does Mike say that Paul was testing Brian or throwing his spanner in the works. That is just what Tune In tells us. Correct. John, Brian, Mike, and Paul. None of them. None of them say that Paul was testing Brian or throwing a spanner in the works or presenting obstacles to deliberately destabilize Brian and make his job more difficult. Lewison may have an alternate personal opinion or theory about Paul, and that's fine, but it's really not his place to state it as fact in the Beatles' definitive biography and or use other people's quotes in a misleading manner to try and support that theory. I think it would be fair to ask the question, like, was this kind of accidentally on purpose? Yeah, I agree. I think it's fine to ask. Mm-hmm. And even explore it a little bit. As long as you provide the caveat that, like, you know, to be fair, Paul was chronically late, according to everyone, forever. Well, yeah, so it's but imp- it's impossible to know for sure. 
you can't just <laughs> accuse him of of deliberately sabotaging the band and then not explain why or offer any evidence yeah it's absurd he also adds that while this wasn't brian's only dispute with the beetle over the years it is one of the few to be known and its timing is telling so there's a lot of insinuation there but Lewison never explains what he means by its timing was telling mm -hmm. and he never explains what he thinks paul's test is exactly is he testing brian to see how long brian will wait outside for him or how many times he's allowed to be late before brian blows his stack mm. i mean i wish lewison had just said what he was thinking because it's not clear no also he states this as fact john took a benign view he might deal with it his own way probably a knowing word to paul at some point but he also wanted to know how brian reacted unaided to being tested yeah i would love to see those and sources for that the knowing word to paul is total speculation which he mm -hmm. acknowledges with the word probably but this is also speculation john also wanted to see how brian reacted unaided to being tested yeah how does he know that how does he know john wasn't refusing to take sides to avoid a confrontation maybe john didn't think it was cool to make paul take the train in the bus in the bus isn't that <laughs> possible well maybe he had a knowing word with brian it was like listen right <laughs> that is not the way to deal with paul yeah maybe he was just giving paul space sure maybe he wanted to see how paul reacted unaided to being tested by brian mm. i mean how is this less of a test on brian's part than paul's okay yeah. paul you snooze you lose let's see now if you'll get your act together yeah great point all right let's shift gears now we have shared our criticisms of Tunin's accusation that Paul was a willful saboteur. And by the way, we're using that term unironically. Tunin has told us that Paul presented obstacles to destabilize Brian and that he intentionally threw his spanner in the works and that he endangered the band's future. Yeah, that's sabotage. Yes, but we are still left wondering what exactly Tunin thinks Paul's problem was. Why doesn't Paul want Brian to manage them? He draws a connection to Stuart, so is it something to do with jealousy, perhaps? Or does he perceive Brian as incompetent? Does he dislike or distrust him? Yeah, I don't know. It's still vague. That said... We do know that there was at least some minor friction between Paul and Brian in the beginning. The Birkenhead incident, for example. And that Paul had some hesitation or caution at first. Mm -hmm. Now, we certainly don't endorse or accept the implied premise in Tune In that Paul must have had some ulterior or concealed motive. But if Lewison won't spell his theory out, Maybe we can take a stab at it ourselves, okay? Based on the evidence, what were Paul's concerns? Were any of those concerns justified? Or at least understandable? 
Well, let's go back to what Brian wrote in A Cellar Full of Noise in 1964. He wrote, I have no favorites among the Beatles, and this they realize now, but it wasn't always so. A manager dealing with a close-knit foursome has to be as fair and as cautious as a father of four children. Okay, so there's some sort of perceived favoritism from Paul's point of view, mm -hmm. right? Okay, so I think it's fair to ask, did Paul maybe feel trapped or angry or powerless or frustrated by the Brian and John situation? What do you mean by that? What Brian and John situation? Well, Tune In spells it out pretty clearly. Here, I'll just read an excerpt from page 514. This is discussing the signing of Brian's management contract with the Beatles. It says, the decision, of course, was John's. This democracy had a leader, and only he approved of the moves. It was time for another of his big decisions. His first was to bring in Paul, and his second was to allow Paul to bring in George. This was the third. Should he admit Brian into their partnership or not? So Tudin states very clearly that John is working with Brian unilaterally. And elsewhere in the book, Lewison writes, in the Epstein Beatles axis, the core essential relationship was always that of Brian and John, which is pretty unambiguous. Yeah. And this unambiguous favoritism continued after they signed the contract with Brian. On page 805, tune in reads, Brian realized that when a decision was needed, he had to get John on his side because the others always looked to see which way he jumped. In the words of Les Chadwick, a Liverpool photographer who worked with the Beatles and Brian later in the year, quote, if you wanted to go from A to B, you had to tell John why. And that's what Brian did, very skillfully. The first person he spoke to was John, always. And once he had John on board, the rest would follow, unquote. So Brian always spoke to John first about decisions. That sounds unfair to me. If I were John's equal partner, I would find that not okay. Speaking of Les Chadwick, let's look at a quote from him about Paul, which Lewison chose not to include. But referring to this point in time, he said, Paul was a bright lad, in his own way, the brightest of the lot. And I don't think he fell as easily for this vision of El Dorado that Brian was giving them glimpses of. The others were all going, yes, yes, let's have it. But I got the impression Paul was wondering if it was all possible, if they weren't going to come down to earth with a bad bump. Paul always seemed to me to be the one that had one foot in dry land. He never lost his grip on reality. He was never swept away by it in the way that the others would allow themselves to be picked up by it and go along with it because it was a laugh. John would go along with anything new and different, even then. He would create situations that Paul would go along with. Paul didn't create situations, but equally, it wouldn't matter if John lost it all. But Paul was more of a thinker. He could see the other side, and he was always trying to envisage 
what would happen if the whole thing fell apart? In a way, it's a shame he couldn't just enjoy it all for what it was, but caution got the better of him. Well, that's nice and humanizing. Yeah. Well, and it's not just a stroke. No. So he does see John as the leader. And like he said, John creates situations. So he does kind of see him as like... uh, The instigator. Yeah, the instigator. Exactly. Sure. But he says Paul was the thinker of the group and also Mm -hmm. the brightest of the lot. So he's not selling Paul short either. And he also is not portraying Paul as like throwing tantrums or or whatever Tunin is trying to say. Like Mm -hmm. he says Paul was more thoughtful. He envisioned the worst case scenario more readily than the others did and he was cautious Mm -hmm. show business especially rock and roll in the early 60s was full of sharks people who want to take their money and exploit their talent yeah and tunin acknowledges that that's right says there were a lot of con men around Mm -hmm. and to some degree the beatles have been burned before like they've had managers that didn't work out so of course Paul is well within his rights to say, okay, I'm going to keep my eye on this guy. And if he does stuff in the first couple months of our relationship that I don't like, I'm going to let him know it. Well, yes. Why does Brian not get a probationary period? Yeah, right. And and why is it being treated like, how dare you? How dare you give him a probationary period instead of just... <laughs> instantly jumping off the cliff paul going all in with this stranger Mm -hmm. that said from brian's perspective i can understand if he felt a little hurt by paul's reservations because it can be deflating when you're really excited about something and and you're trying to share that excitement with somebody and bring them along into your vision and they're kind of just like yeah okay we'll see yeah definitely but it's not Paul's job to make sure Brian feels good all the time. Back to tune in. On page 806, Lewison writes, Paul had to accept John's closeness to Brian and that once again, he was further down the pecking order than he wanted to be. Not that he and John weren't themselves incredibly close. Paul believes John was wise to the possibility of being the man to whom Brian turned first and made sure to secure that position. Also, he adds, I'm sure Brian was in love with John. We were all in love with John, but Brian was gay, so that added an edge. It was through John that Brian floated most of the changes he thought essential if the Beatles were to make it. Some battles he won, others he didn't. Some the Beatles accepted easily, others not. Okay, so there are a few different points there. (laughs) Yeah, first of all, why does Paul have to accept that once again he was further down the pecking order than he wanted to be? No, he doesn't. He does not have to accept that. (laughs) That's the whole point. Yes, maybe he is establishing that he will not accept it. And that's if you buy into the premise, which I'm not sure I do. Like, what pecking order are we even talking about? Well, why is Brian even in the pecking order? He's not a beetle. I don't know. I, you'd think it was about power, I guess. But then Lewison says, 
not that John and Paul weren't incredibly close. So is this a closeness to John pecking order? <laughs> and if it is, is Tunin implying Brian is now closer to John than Paul is? That seems ludicrous. Yeah. But it would fit nicely with Tunin's use of John's highly edited comparison of the Brian situation to the Stuart situation. So is this just return of jealous Paul? Or is or is Paul jealous of Brian's regard for John? Well, that's how it seems at the beginning of the like that's where it's, yeah, right? it sounds like that's where the paragraph is going where paul is jealous because he wants to be best boy mm. and he's angry that john is teacher's pet but then lewison pulls the switcheroo and he's like not that john and paul weren't also very close like wait what here's something i'd love to know if lewison feels free <laughs> to go so far as to suggest paul is jealous of brian's sudden closeness to john wouldn't brian also be jealous of paul's established closeness to john mm. and paul's influence over him both of which i'm sure brian would like to have for himself sure why isn't that ever floated could that have contributed to brian and paul's tension it's a good question a really good question i hadn't even i had never thought of that yeah i mean maybe brian is immune to jealousy maybe paul is the only person in this story capable of jealousy that is what this book is trying to suggest to us with a straight face and that just seems ludicrous to me yes it's, it's silly okay maybe it's not that maybe alternate theory maybe lewison is not implying that brian is part of the pecking order maybe he's just saying that paul is back down to second place in the pecking order after john mm. like perhaps paul and john had begun to share the top slot but now that brian is manager paul has to get back in line behind john mm. so maybe paul had been getting above his station until brian swooped in and restored the natural order and tough luck for paul if he didn't like that because being second to john lennon is what he signed up for in 1957 yes okay although again this is something that john always requires assistance with for some reason i don't like if he is natural unidog top dog alpha man <laughs> i don't know why he why does he need brian's help why does he need klein's help in 1969 yeah why does he need yoko's help in 1968 why does he ever need help if this is his natural preordained yes and everyone knows it including paul it just yeah it just doesn't make any sense and then there's this from tunin Paul believes John was wise to the possibility of being the man who Brian turned first to and made sure to secure that position. But are you saying that like Paul believes it, but it's not necessarily true? Didn't you just make that very point yourself? Mm -hmm. On one hand, you make the case that Brian and John are making all the decisions unilaterally and Brian is favoring John and going to him with all the decisions and giving him first bite at everything and then you're like 
Paul believed it wasn't fair. Like we, you just explained how it wasn't fair. <laughs> and Paul himself says right here in his own dopey way, you know, that Brian was in love with John. He's like, I don't mean the way that we were all in love with John. Like, huh, you know, isn't he great? He's funny. I mean, mm-hmm. he was in love, in love with John. In a gay way. In a, exactly. Like, as in he wants to <laughs> sleep with him. As in favoritism to the nth degree yes there's family nepotism and there's romantic interest those are the top tier creators of favoritism this is obvious and well known people need to stop acting like brian being in love with john had no effect on internal band dynamics that's absurd yes well and not secretly in love with him like Mm. not pining away you know like actively trying to get with him yes within a few months if not immediately and we're not saying that that makes brian a bad person it just is what it is Uh, well why in the world would it make brian a bad person like get out of my face with that why would i say that that makes him a bad person of course he's in love with John Lennon. He's adorable and lovely and sexy and uh, not judging the guy. I'm just saying like people we all know, right? Can we stop pretending, please? Well, why are we like that doesn't make any difference that he's trying to fuck one of the members? It's like, well, I, of course it does. I think it does. It definitely so does. Right. If that member's also getting preferential treatment, yeah, I think that's a pretty easy case to make actually yeah right it's way past time to validate paul's feelings on that yes like we're way past that it's 2023 i cordially invite you all to be real for a second So we just mentioned that Brian was trying to get with John within a few months, if not sooner. Here's our source for that. This is a tidbit that was not included in TuneIn, but was included in Chris Salowich's book, page 121. Early in 1962, John Lennon, Brian Epstein, along with Paul and Sam Leach, went out for an evening's drinking. This was the only occasion that Leach ever saw Paul drunk. Leach says usually he was just too well behaved to get blind drunk but on this occasion he was pissed by midnight and we just put him in a taxi and sent him home (laughs) then the three of them Sam Leach, John and Brian made their way to Leach's home where they sat around the kitchen table drinking some more here's Leach again and Brian is saying to John let's go to Amsterdam for the weekend and I'm saying go on you'll enjoy yourself have a laugh dead innocent Suddenly, I get a kick under the table. I think, what the fuck's that for? Then I tell them again they should go and get another kick. So I go for a wee, and John follows me and tells me to shut up. Don't you know he's queer? Oh, dear. Sorry. Okay, so Brian was trying to get John to go on holiday with him in early 1962. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, it is true that paul was passed out drunk at home by the time this proposition occurred (laughs) 
I'm sure someone out there is going to be like, well, it just it says Paul wasn't even there when the, this conversation happened. How would he know? But I also think everybody knew. Yeah. Paul doesn't have to literally hear Brian proposition John. He know like everybody knows. John knows. Well, and if Brian is talking about wanting to go to Amsterdam here in front of Sam Leach, then clearly he's not being terribly discreet about it. So maybe Brian did also say this in front of Paul at some point. Well, he's not hiding it. And by the right. way, Brian wasn't the world's most discreet dude. Like he propositioned yeah. Pete Best and Pete Shodden. Yeah. And yeah. when they turned him down, he said, okay, cool. And yeah, moved yeah, he on. Didn't, yeah he didn't act any kind of way about it no uh, no but i'm just saying he might have been classy uh, but he wasn't hiding anything yes like this is known i'm not playing this game anymore we're not pretending that nobody knew what was going on i mean maybe it maybe sam leach was slow on the uptake but yeah yeah right well paul i mean <sighs> fine okay let's play the game just for a few more seconds even if paul didn't know that brian wanted to go away with john <laughs> because he was gay and that added an edge thanks paul <laughs> um it would still be preferential treatment well exactly no matter what brian's gonna do it doesn't matter if he goes and treats him to a expense all these cases yeah that's special treatment even if he just wants to go and listen to john's new songs yeah i mean that almost be worse yeah exactly but... at least brian's motives are transparent here <laughs> yeah yes and you know whatever the motives paul has every right to object to that favoritism just like john would have been justified to be upset if george martin had thought well, hey there, Paul definitely has some aptitude as an arranger and producer, so I'm going to whisk him away to Provence for a private holiday so we can get to know each other better. Obviously, that would be preferential treatment, unprofessional, not cool, and would have set John's hair on fire. John would have been reasonable to think, uh, of course, no, this is not going to play out well for me. Exactly. Like, that's a reasonable thing to be wary of. Mm-hmm. We as fans, though, are so inured to the Barcelona trip, you know, because it happened 60 years ago. It's a foregone conclusion in the story. But we have to try to put ourselves in the shoes of the 1962 Beatles, the struggling Beatles of 1962. Tune in tacitly acknowledges Brian's favoritism of John, but it characterizes it as a neutral thing rather than something that obviously, if left unchecked, is going to benefit John and disadvantage Paul. Or it frames it as something that John deserves by reminding us constantly that he is the leader. Yeah. Yeah. This democracy had a leader and only he approved of the moves. <sighs> but you know what? Paul doesn't know what this alliance between Brian and John is going to mean down the line. Yeah. So it's rational for him to worry about it, especially since we're all looking at this with 60 years of hindsight we know that the beatles mm -hmm. make it we know that in fact they make it to an unprecedented stratospheric level i frequently see the argument that you know well what's the big deal if john is being favored 
Isn't being number two in the most successful band of all time enough for Ball? Like, why isn't that enough for him? But that's an inappropriate application of hindsight. The Beatles have no idea how big they're about to make it. In 1963, George is still talking about how he hopes to make enough money to start a business before they inevitably (laughs) flop. So their future is radically uncertain right now and for the next couple years still. 1962, Paul is fighting for his life. He's still chasing basic security and getting demoted or deprioritized right now at this crucial junction legit could have seriously impacted his career and his long-term financial well-being. It could have meant the difference between a small side income and lifetime security. Mm -hmm. Paul is a worrier. He's given up good academic prospects for this band and his family has high expectations. In 1962, a significantly biased manager could have posed a threat to his success. And not for nothing, to his personal relationship with John. Well, and what if this new manager decides he wants to permanently feature John in the spotlight and move Mm -hmm. Paul to the back of the stage or give Paul one number per set or whatever? We, as readers, many decades later, may feel confident that Brian would never do that. But remember, they don't know him. But they do know men will do all kinds of things in the pursuit of sex. And Mm -hmm. Paul surely knows that as well as anyone. (sighs) Think of the cliche about dads warning their daughters. Yes. Honey, I know what teenage boys were like because I was one of them. (laughs) Yep. I don't think enough people are willing to imagine what a John biased manager might have hypothetically been willing to do to kiss up to John. Definitely. Not like, don't make this about Brian. Just make this about a person. Yes. A question mark, a person you don't know. And as a matter of fact, Lewison explains on page 775 that Brian could have split them as a group because their contract with Brian had the following clause. The manager may at any time, if he so desires, split up the artists with whom this agreement is made so that they shall perform as separate individual performers. Uh, Tunin then, you know, theorizes that this was probably nothing more than a hangover from the sample contract or perhaps it reflected Brian's thinking after, as Alistair Taylor alone would claim, without verification, Paul had said he hoped the Beatles would be successful as a group, but if they weren't, he'd still be shooting for stardom, presumably alone. So Lewison hypothesizes here that the clause could have allowed Brian to manage Paul individually if for some reason the band flopped or broke up. But obviously this contract would apply to any of them, not just Paul. Of course. Apparently, according to Alistair Taylor, Paul said he'd still want to pursue a musical career if something happened to the band, which, fine. I mean, that shouldn't be shocking or surprising or, right. you know, of course he would want to do that if the band mm-hmm. fell apart. Yeah. And by the way, that undermines Lewison's theory about Paul forgoing an academic career just to compete for John's attention. <laughs> Remember Good that story. fun theory? Yeah. I that sure do. 
that that Paul didn't go to university or into teaching because he was too preoccupied with being a rival with Stuart for John's attention. Right. Apparently not. Apparently it was because Paul was committing to life in music. Who knew? What a twist. <laughs> But to bring things back to the Birkenhead incident, from the evidence, I think it's fairly clear that Paul realizes having Brian as a manager is a good thing. They need a manager, and Brian is certainly their best option. However, I think it's reasonable for Paul to feel not just personally hurt or humiliated by Brian's actions before the Birkenhead show, but to feel threatened. Because Paul has already detected favoritism for John on Brian's part, according to Brian's own recollection, which makes it reasonable for Paul to worry about his position in the Beatles and to want to impress upon Brian his own importance and power within the band. Given all that, in a situation like this one, where he feels he's being deliberately undervalued, taken for granted, as Paul himself explained, and punished, the only real bargaining power he has is to withhold his participation. Yeah, to go on strike. Is this a perfectly straightforward and mature way to handle things? Perhaps not, and I think it's fine to call that out. But on the other hand, Paul is 19 years old. And I say that not as if 19 isn't an adult. I'm just saying that people need time to become savvy business negotiators. You know, most 19-year-olds are not, even very privileged 19-year-olds are not usually great negotiators on a big scale. Paul is a working class kid who has spent a lot of his life being reminded of his place in the pecking order of the class system. Paul has mentioned several times that John and Brian had a middle class bond and that was intimidating to him. That's not factored in at all here. And furthermore, for a variety of reasons, Paul may have been raised to deal with conflict indirectly. None of that is ever considered in TuneIn because as we stated before, this book right. makes no time for the effects of Paul's childhood and upbringing on his behavior patterns or coping mechanisms. Right. Yeah, so... Suffice to say, this is an imperfect method for Paul to use to try to advocate from himself. But a serious history of the Beatles is obligated to look at things from Paul's point of view and at minimum present his side, even if the author isn't on Paul's side. Yes, exactly. And and it's also okay for the reader to not be on Paul's side. If you sure. take all that into account and you're like, well, that's fine, but I still think he was wrong that's fine too but it's not okay to present paul's perspective by quoting him once but then spending the next two pages arguing that his feelings were unjustified using insinuations and out of context quotes from john lennon in 1971 
and erroneously stating that Brian and Paul's future relationship was set in the testy way it started. Now, TuneIn asserts that at the time of the Birkenhead drama, Brian's commitment to the cause of creating their fame and fortune could not have been more emphatically established before Paul threw his banner in the works. But I'm not sure what that means. Like, what is that supposed to mean, aside from clearly implying that Paul has no right to object to or even question anything Brian does? Even though, remember, they only met Brian two months ago, and they only signed the contract with him one month ago. Yeah, so Brian goes from courting and whining and dining Paul to telling him to take the bus within a month? Mm. We don't get any examples here of what Brian has done to make himself so manifestly above reproach. A generous contract? Investing his own money to pay their expenses for the moment? Like, that's lovely, but not absolute proof of competence or eternal devotion. And in fact, on page 830, we were told that within three weeks of obtaining the Beatles' signatures, Brian began offering his management package to others. Why not? <laughs> Liverpool was awash with talent, and no one else was doing much. In February, Brian showed interest in signing at least five groups. Jerry and the Pacemakers, the Remo Four, Johnny Sandon and the Searchers, the Undertakers, and the Four Jays. Also, TuneIn has thoroughly documented how in his past academic and professional life, Brian could be unreliable, inconsistent, reckless, passionately taking up new interests, and then abandoning them just as quickly. We'll share one quote from TuneIn about this on page 736 about Brian's immediate enthusiasm for the Beatles. It was instant, like it always was with Brian. His life, as his family knew only too well, was a succession of impulsive passions, energetically devoured and then discarded. Hmm. And on page 472, we're told that Brian's employees had all learned the hard way to live with his insistence on perfection and to recognize his mood swings. Mr. Brian's behavior earned their loyalty, but kept them ever wary, arrogant and adorable. Cutting and charming, flawed but fair, here was a man they could love and hate in the same breath. Huh. Perfectionistic, arrogant, adorable, <laughs> cutting, charming. That sounds, that sounds a little familiar. And it sounds like someone it'd be easy to butt heads with. Come to think of it, Brian is also described in TuneIn as uh, autocratic, polite, and fiercely competitive. That he loathed being second best at anything. <laughs> mm. Wow. So, you know, this is making me wish we'd gotten some Brian and Paul are too similar to get along theorizing instead of this Brian is the new Stuart nonsense. <laughs> I'm not saying Brian wasn't in actuality totally committed and determined and wonderful. I'm just saying that it makes perfect sense at this early stage for Paul to be keeping a close eye on him. And you know, from Paul's point of view, I feel like Brian's commitment could have been more emphatically established by Brian being willing <laughs> to drive five miles to pick Paul up so they could mm. go make their apparently all-important career-making gig. Based on A Cellar Full of Noise and the Hunter Davies book, for that matter, 
I think Brian probably started out favoring John and probably thinking that was okay. Like if he asked them, so who's the leader here? Do you guys have a leader? And they all said, well, John, if we have one, you know, mm-hmm. or John put his hand up or whatever, then okay. He's probably thinking, fine, John's the leader. It's it's fine that I favor him. Yeah, sure. It's quite possible that this was the moment Brian changed his thinking because he says this was the night that the importance of equality between the Beatles was brought home to him with an unpleasant thump. So he certainly got there by 1964 when A Cellar Full of Noise was published. So probably before, but certainly by 1964, the policy was most definitely that Lennon and McCartney are equal partners and that all four of the Beatles should be treated equally. And in 1967 to Hunter Davies, he says, I think Paul thinks I'm closer to John than to him. It isn't so. It was at first, but now I love all of the boys equally. According to this, according to what Brian wrote in 64 and what he said to Hunter Davies in 67, at least the policy was, okay? If you want to say, well, that was what they said. That was what Brian pretended was true, but deep down- he sure. really loved John the most. Fine, but that. But what I'm saying is the official policy of mm. the Beatles as a group and Brian mm-hmm. as a manager is that he's going to treat all four Beatles equally. I'm not saying it makes Brian a bad person to not have figured that out right away. Seems like he got with the program fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Maybe it took the backlash from Barcelona to really drive it home. Mm. But it seems like from that point, at least, Brian did his best and did a really good job of treating all the Beatles with care and respecting and valuing them as individuals. Absolutely. And we can give Brian credit for that. But we can also give Paul credit for advocating for himself. One can still make the case that his behavior, even if it's not ideal, even if he is acting annoying or whatever, Mm -hmm. that his his behavior is the only thing that ensured that he was going to get treated equally. Or at least was part of the reason, because sometimes in order to change a situation, you have to make people a little uncomfortable first. And that's especially true in professional relationships. Like, you got to ask for a big raise up front and then negotiate. And if Paul knows that historically people tend to underestimate his power and influence relative to John's, then now is an appropriate time to do that. Yeah, to demonstrate to Brian that this is not a top-down hierarchy, however Mm. things might appear at first glance. And that actually, if Brian wants to get stuff done, he needs to convince Paul, too. And Brian would be well advised and better served to realize that ASAP, which he did. Because Paul is a good person to have on your side. Well, and to Les Chadwick's point about you had to convince John first and then the others would follow his lead. I think that's true to an extent in that Mm -hmm. George and Pete or George and Ringo would follow John's lead, but Paul won't necessarily. Yeah, not necessarily. 
which is why we're constantly arguing that the top-down hierarchy is oversimplified and seriously flawed because Paul doesn't always follow John's lead and in fact can persuade John or move him in a different direction, which can then change the trajectory of the band while still allowing John to remain at the front. Yes, yes. John is the ram out in front of the herd, but Paul's the sheepdog. He can turn the flock from the side or from behind. So, you know, not to beat this metaphor into the ground, but if Brian wants to be the shepherd, <laughs> he needs to build a rapport with the sheepdog. And yes, uh, a temperamental border collie might be more complicated to deal with. And it might display some intelligent disobedience on occasion. But that is its job. But Lewison tells us that not only are Paul's methods disastrous and deliberately disruptive, he tacitly argues, sometimes explicitly, that Paul is in the wrong to think he should be treated equally in the first place. John's band, John's decision, de Grazia. So what? So what? If Tunin tells us Paul is shut out of decision-making, that he is wrong to expect more or better, that he should accept whatever he's given without question, and that if at any time he fails to do so, that means he is a saboteur. Why is that a problem? What's, what's the big problem with that? Anyway, why does this matter? Well, it matters and is a big problem because besides presenting an obvious issue for Paul, nowhere is this inequality codified into the Beatles operating system. That's why editorializing that Paul just had to accept that John was more equal than Paul mm -hmm. is insidious. It implies without proof or even tangible support that this inequality was known to Paul McCartney and accepted by him as part of the devil's handshake of becoming Lennon McCartney. Lewison takes it a step further by reiterating his premise here. This democracy had a leader and only he approved its moves. This is a very big deal, okay? This is a very big deal. Ownership of the Beatles and the partnership was litigated in the early 70s and nowhere has it ever been proven or written or even stated by any of the Beatles at any time that John was president of the band with unilateral authority to make decisions. There is surely a nuanced conversation to be had about what being the leader entails, and it might be the case that, for instance, that title came enshrined with more power at the beginning of the Beatles than it did at the end, or even that the meaning of the word leader itself changed over time within the band as the Beatles became men and evolved their concepts of institution and hierarchy. That's a really interesting idea that could be fascinating to explore. But stating unequivocally in Tune In that John Lennon had absolute power is unfounded 
and unsupported. And therefore, it's nothing more than a pet theory or a personal interpretation. And Lewison is more than welcome to have theories and interpretations. And I'm certain that many people would be interested in hearing them because he's extremely knowledgeable about the Beatles. But this book claims to be something other than that. In the introduction, on page 9, Lewison wrote of his goals and intentions for TuneIn. He wrote, I've wanted a history of deep-level inquiry where the information is tested accurate and free of airbrushing, embellishment, and guesswork, written with an open mind and even hands. As we close this episode, we'd like to ask a few questions. What do you think was the point of TuneIn's portrayal of Paul's wariness of Brian and of the Birkenhead strike in particular? Was it to pinpoint the disparity in early decision-making? To confront Brian's initial preference for John and set the stage for a more equal distribution of favor in the near future? Was it to show the evolution of the Beatles as a democratic unit? To demonstrate how Brian and the Beatles learned from their earliest flare-ups? to show us how these early bumps in the road taught them to understand, see, and value each other? Or does TuneIn seem more invested in telling us that Paul is a problem, moody, disruptive, jealous, and attention-seeking? Are we being primed to view every issue of Paul's as unreasonable? To think of everything he does as petulant, or an indefensible power grab? If that is what we're supposed to think, how will Paul ever be allowed to stand up for himself? How will he be able to grow, innovate, and flourish? Isn't that the environment artists should have? Tune in talks about John and Brian as if they should be allowed to act with impunity. Paul, on the other hand, must always be held accountable for not only his words and behavior, but also for the ignoble thoughts and feelings Tunin repeatedly ascribes to him. The last chapter of Tunin ends in December 1962. All of these issues of favoritism and distribution of power are about to come to a head. By April of 1963, Brian will take John to Barcelona. And although Brian had no ill intent, that decision will have negative repercussions and cause a reevaluation of boundaries. How can we process that accurately or fairly when we've been told Paul is wrong in his every major personal conflict? When we've been told that Paul is jealous, unlikable, and difficult, a concealed and cutting dissenter, deliberately throwing his spanner into the Beatles' success. How can Paul ever get honest and fair representation in the Beatles' story when John Lennon's breakup and lawsuit-era interviews are considered a reliable source about Paul McCartney's feelings and thoughts? A more reliable source, in fact, than Paul McCartney himself. 
how can we see Paul's side of things clearly if Mr. Lewison repeatedly chooses to truncate, omit, or misrepresent primary source quotes in the pursuit of his desired narrative? Has TuneIn already reached a verdict about Paul? Has it already thrown the book at him? Does Lewison already have his denouement written? Can we see already how this version of the story is going to end? Well, we're not quite finished. So far, we've shown TuneIn's effusive celebration of John's rebellious spirit and irreverent, edgy nonconformity. In the next episode, we'll take a look at a few events that would seem to be hard to celebrate. Hard, but apparently not impossible. Mm-hmm. Join us next time for episode eight, No Greater Buddy. As the Thank you for listening to another kind of mind we hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast series fine tuning an examination of mark lewison's tune in for supplemental material on fine tuning visit our website at anotherkindofmind.com want to discuss fine tuning with other acom listeners got thoughts questions disagreements you can find and follow us on social media we also have a discussion group on the old Facebook that listeners can request to join. You can also email us at acompodcast at gmail.com. But of course, the absolute best way to show your support is to recommend ACOM to others. Like and share us on social media. Post our episodes in your online forums and chats. Send links to your friends, kids, grandparents, dog. Bring it up to the bartender. <laughs> Tell the moms at PTA. ACOM will increase your lifespan, is what we're saying. 